0: Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Today's Wednesday, July 27th, 2022. Great to be back with you. And thanks very much for listening, downloading, watching the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Don't forget to like it. Don't forget to subscribe to it. Don't forget to tell your friends about it. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking with David Bernstein, who is the author of Classified, and he will be uh, he will be spending about a half an hour here talking about that new book about racial classifications in the federal government system what they mean, what they don't mean, as well as uh, how they they impact you, how they impact government policy. We talk a lot about how you do measurements and that sort of thing. Again, the book is classified by David Bernstein. And I'm going to tell you that it's a fascinating conversation you're going to really enjoy this. David Bernstein, of course, is a contributor over at Instapundit. He's also a contributor at Vola Conspiracy. So that'll be coming up next. Today, lots of news coming up and sort of a, 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 a held breath, if you will about the economic numbers that are going to come out tomorrow. The Bureau of Economic Analysis is going to produce its GDP report tomorrow. And the GDP report is clearly expected to be negative at the White House because as Politico reports, they are in full arm-twisting mode with the media because apparently they don't trust the media to carry the water this time around. Uh, And you're already starting to see a lot of the water carrying start to get a little shaky here. There's been tons of reporting about how two negative quarters of GDP uh, don't uh, define a recession, but there's already starting to be some pushback on that because nobody's been able to find uh, two quarters of negative growth in in GDP reports that didn't end up being part of a recession. So uh, I've got something about that. Politico's reporting it on this morning about the arm twisting going on. It is the Chip Diller strategy. All is well, all is well. So that's coming up on Hot Air. If you haven't already seen it, Turning Point USA has uh, has served a cease and desist notice on ABC News over comments on the View that uh, that the View made about their uh, their their event over the weekend, in which <clears throat> some neo-Nazi protesters, a small band of neo-Nazi protesters, purportedly neo-Nazi protesters, showed up outside the event. And the views hosts repeatedly, and even while being corrected, insisted that that represented Turning Point USA's um, ideology and practices and beliefs. And um, yeah, that's going to be an interesting lawsuit. They didn't learn much from Nick Sandman. I guess I guess nobody learned much from Nick Sandman. Um, it'll be fun to watch. I'm not sure if that's. I don't know how far that'll go in terms of a defamation fight. But it still is going to be very interesting to watch. Um, Jazz has a good piece up about Cassidy Hutchinson, about some of the statements that she's been making and how they contradict some of her testimony, her previous statements, how they contradict some of her testimony from the January 6th committee. That's getting an awful lot of attention. But of course, one of the biggest stories really broke last night was the Washington Post reporting that uh, the Department of Justice is taking an interest in Donald Trump's Um, actions, his conversations with his inner circle regarding the fake electors scheme and uh, the attempts to uh, reverse the um, November 2020 election. I don't see this as being as big a deal perhaps as uh, some of the other um, takes on this. I don't even know that what the Post is reporting is that Trump is a target of the DOJ. Uh, Merrick Garland went on NBC, um, NBC with uh, Lester Holt and said, You know, we don't make those kinds of political determinations as to whether or not we should prosecute former presidents. All we do is we follow the investigation without fear or favor, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that really is the role of the Department of Justice. The decision on something like that would have to come from the White House. But I suspect that they don't really want to go down that road either if for no other reason that it really resets a whole bunch of precedents that Joe Biden is going to live to regret (laughs) if he pursues it. Um, On the other hand, I mean, I think that there's a legitimate tension here between the fact that the rule of law applies to everybody from presidents on down to is it really worth spending years fighting a battle that has been long past in order to maybe get a measure of justice over it or is it better to move on in terms of the official, you know, governmental, uh, uh, you know, departments and agencies and that sort of thing? I, that's a legitimate question. And it really depends on how strongly you feel about what took place between election day, and November, or in, in January 6th and, you know, 2020 to 2021. And I think that uh, what you're going to see out of the Department of Justice really is more going after the inner circle. And I think there's a Watergate parallel here, too, is that. Uh, I don't know that the Department of Justice ever would have prosecuted Richard Nixon after the resignation. I think that they might have decided that um, the, that an impeachment and a removal had taken place or his resignation was enough. But they certainly went after his inner circle. Uh, a number of his inner circle ended up doing prison time. And that's probably the, I would say that that's probably the precedent that we're looking at here too. But of course, it's going to be an ongoing debate. And you know we will be we will be continuing to have that debate as we go along. A couple other fun things. Uh, House Democrats have introduced a bill called the Supreme Court Term Act. Um, terM. It's an acronym because you can't have a you can't have a silly didactic stunt without a an acronym that's uh, equally silly and didactic. Uh, trying to impose term limits on the Supreme Court but with, with this sleight of hand by making them, you know, emeritus status or senior status where they don't actually do uh where they don't actually review cases um that is not going to work it's not even going to get it's not even going to pass the senate it may not even pass the house but it gives democrats something to talk about other than the economy and this brings me to my final point here which is that i don't think democrats political analysts or even the media truly understand the difference in political context this cycle is going to have and i don't think they're too prepared to measure it either we are for the first time in 42 years in an election cycle where you've got runaway inflation you've got wage erosion you've got difficulty you've got energy costs going through the roof and you have a very unpopular president sitting on top of well in this in 80 in, in 1980 he was sitting on top of the ticket but in in 2022 joe biden is hanging around the necks of Democrats. And midterm elections are always, uh, in large extent, a referendum on the incumbent president. And I would argue much more so likely in this cycle than arguments about the Supreme Court, arguments about Dobbs. All those things really miss the point of where Americans are focused. They're focused on trying to figure out how their shrinking buying power is going to stretch to fit their their current lifestyles or even just their expenses. And I don't think we've been in this situation in decades and the media is missing, I think, just how important that's going to be in midterm elections. That doesn't mean that bad candidates are necessarily going to win all of the all of their races, you know, but it does mean that the impact of that is going to be less probably Uh, at least a bit less and maybe significantly less than it was in 2010 and 2012 when bad candidates kept uh, Republicans from taking control of the Senate when they had a real opportunity to do so. Um, This is something I think that people are missing. I think the media is missing it. And I I would suggest that you're going to probably see late-breaking polls showing this in October, maybe starting early to mid-October. You're going to see that impact showing up in late-breaking polls Especially since no one expects inflation to go away and the wage erosion wouldn't be corrected for at least another couple of years anyway. Even if you got inflation to go to, to drop to zero overnight, the wage erosion that's already taken place over the last 15 months is likely going to take a couple of years to uh, to catch up to. So bear that in mind. House Democrats trying for a distraction strategy ain't gonna work. Anyway, thank you for watching. Stay tuned now for uh, the the interview with David Bernstein about his book *Classified* and the um and *Classified* is the untold story of racial classification in America. It's a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And of course, stick around. I've got a commentary at the end of it as well. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more. Welcome to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining me now is David Bernstein, who's written a new book classified, the untold story of racial classification in America. The untold story, the untold history, uh, maybe even the untold future, David. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me It's great to be here.
0: You know, uh, this is something I think that has been around for a few decades now. And I think that there's a sense of normalcy around this But, you know, in reading the book, you find out that the United States is one of, I wouldn't say a few countries, but it's, there aren't a lot of countries that do this type of classification to the extent that the United States does it. There's a couple that do it even to an even greater extent, which you discussed in the book.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, in fact, um, the United States came pretty close to completely outlawing uh, using race in any way by the government. In the 1950s, we were on the cusp of the victory of the civil rights movement. We had the example of the Holocaust with its uh, racial classifications in Nazi Germany of Mischlings and so forth. And there was a, a strong sentiment that we should just abolish this entirely because it's too dangerous. I mean, that's that's actually a really
0: good Lying to draw too, because it's, it's, a, it's something that I thought of, too, is that you see, uh, if, you, if you're a student at all of, of the Second World War, you see the Nuremberg Laws. And, I mean, obviously, a much different intent there, but it's still the same type of system where intent can change and those types of classifications can be used for more nefarious purposes. Now, fortunately, that hasn't been the case here in the United States, but it has... Still had an impact on public policy that isn't entirely salutary.
1: Sure. And, and I think one key point that we need to emphasize here is that while we tend to think, we Americans tend to think of these classifications as being sort of voluntary and self-imposed. So I am what I say I am. Uh, What we're getting at here uh, implicitly, and it's true, is that the government actually does have official classifications that are defined by law. It's true that no one generally checks up on you if you check uh, the quote-unquote wrong box, but they are official uh, classifications. And ironically, maybe, uh, and to a large extent, we've actually recreated the classifications that were used 100 years ago for bad things. So uh, there's no multiracial classification. Uh, so if you're black, you know, if you're black and white, multiracial, black and Asian, the government will generally classify you as black, similar to the one drop rule. The Asian classification includes everyone from Pakistan to the Philippines, but doesn't include the Middle East, which is exactly the line that was drawn in 1924 by the Immigration Act that prohibited Asian immigration uh, and uh, prohibited Asians from naturalizing as citizens. So while the uh, Classifications are generally not used for pernicious purposes, except maybe in college admissions against Asians. They're they're, they're used for civil rights laws or for affirmative action purposes to try to help. Uh, Oddly enough, we are still using the same racist classifications that we used 100 years ago.
0: You know, yeah. I mean, and uh, I think that that's a it's one of those things where it was probably a was it initially intended as a temporary um solution because you know affirmative action was initially supposed to be temporary right it was supposed to be a corrective to what what was really a real problem right and it was specifically among black americans which was that the hundred years or so of jim crow that followed the civil war really impeded the ability to gain wealth and to uh, gain education and the thought process at the time was uh you can't just say Okay, go out now and compete because we've already put this entire population behind an eight ball in, in many places. We need to find some way to correct the historic wrong, and so therefore you have to have these classifications in order to in order to affect that type of public policy. But that was always supposed to be a temporary solution. The Supreme Court's talked about this a couple of times. <clears throat> was do you in, in researching this and writing about this? Did you, did you see evidence that this was really supposed to be a temporary solution in terms of classifications or that this was just going to be, it was always intended to be the new normal for, um, for the federal government?
1: Well, you've touched on two related issues. The first of which is the classifications themselves weren't actually intended for affirmative action purposes, and certainly not specifically for, say, education. What happened is that the government was gathering all these statistics based on various civil rights laws that where they had to gather, like Voting Rights Act, they have to know how many people are voting and so forth, of each race to make sure it's not discrimination, but also employment discrimination. And there was also a lot of, there's a lot of impetus in the 60s and 70s to study the different racial groups in the United States, different ethnic groups, to make sure that groups aren't being left out, how much progress now that we've desegregated schools, how much progress are African-Americans making? How much progress are Mexican-Americans making? And you have to have classifications to measure that. But the problem was that every government agency had its own definition and its own. So for Hispanics, what we now call Hispanics, there was some some just had Mexican-Americans, some had Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans, some had Mexican-Americans. Uh, Cuban Americans and Puerto Ricans. Some had Spanish speakers. Some had Spanish-speaking household. Some had uh, Spanish surname, and so on. Yeah, you know, so you're getting you're getting apples and oranges in the data. So there was this impetus just to uh, regularize the data. And meanwhile, like you said, this was primarily about African Americans. Back in 1970, we really were primarily a biracial country. Uh, There was a large majority of white Americans, a minority of black Americans, and there was like 1% Asians, less than half percent Native Americans, and Hispanic Americans were considered to be a white group. So when they were doing these classifications, uh, you know, the Asian classification makes very little sense, including, you know, Pakistanis and Filipinos in the same classification, but there were so few of them, no one really <clears throat> thought about it. When they wrote in the classification to law, they said these are not to be used. These are not anthropological, they're not scientific, they're not to be used uh, for qualifications for any government program, but Everyone was gathering this data anyway. So that was just a convenient way of using of doing affirmative action. We have to gather the data for government contractors to make sure we're not discriminating in contracting. We have to gather this data in education uh, by law. So when we're going to do affirmative action, we already have this data. So let's just use it. So it's really no thought put into it whether these are the people that we want to help and how we define them. You know,
0: it's interesting because uh, I, I've worked in other i've worked in other fields right and uh, primarily my career before i started doing this was call center management and um and uh, higher up level management of call center functions right which require all sorts of measurements and because when you're working in a 24 7 environment you can't you simply can't be there all the time you have to find some way to objectively measure what people are doing and what i have found and i'm curious as to whether or not you see this too what i have found is that What you measure drives policy. And I mean, I could see that in myself, right? I would measure something, I would see something, I would change policy, and you'd have to eventually recognize the limitations of the measures. So either add more measures (laughs) or you adjust policy so that it's a little less measure oriented. And I think what you're describing here is very similar, right? You start off with measures. And then you start driving policy off of what you see from the measures, and then you realize that the measures aren't really sufficient, so you start expanding the measurements. Is that, is that sort of what you're seeing in when you're doing this study in, in your book, Classified?
1: That's really an excellent insight. Uh, yeah, and that's exactly what I found with Classified. Uh, no one really thought of Hispanics as being a coherent ethnic group. Back in the 1970s, people didn't call themselves Hispanic. You probably couldn't find one in 100 Mexican Americans who, if you asked them what is your ethnic identity, would have said Hispanic. Some would have said Mexican American, some Chicano, maybe Latino, uh, which they added later to the Hispanic thing, but they still define it uh, in the original way, Uh, or just American or Catholic or whatever it might be. But no one thought themselves as Hispanic. But once the government creates the Hispanic category and people are checking the box and getting benefits or not based on that. Uh, and groups are organizing around that so it's so there's actually two things it's one that the measurement drives the policy but to uh, but it's also that unlike say in the call center context that now uh there are interest groups that form around those identities and have an incentive to push them and defend the boundaries so one reason for example we don't have a multiracial uh uh, uh cl- classification on the census or in other government forms is that all the traditional civil rights groups, Hispanic groups, black groups, et cetera, lobbied against it because they they want to preserve uh, the coherence of this identity because that's their constituency. Yeah, I would say that i
0: even I even saw glimmers of what you're talking about in in my in my very limited context and call centers, which was that people perform to the metrics. And that's something else that you have to <laughs> you have to understand when you start applying these is that people will perform to the metrics. And to the extent that those metrics don't measure job performance full, you end up with very, um, you end up with poor results, and you end up having to again expand measurements in order to cover what it was that you weren't measuring, but is still important to the mission. And it becomes very complicated. Now, that's really necessary in that in that type of environment. You really have to have those kinds of measures in order to evaluate people fairly. But that's performance-based measures. That's not that's not um, immutable characteristics measurements, and I think this is the part where where it really becomes problematic. Which is that, and you talk about this in the book. There is no such thing as a pure Hispanic American as a single as a single identity group. Not in reality. There's no such thing as a Black American as a single a single identity group. Not in reality. Just because populations mix, right and and. You know, Black Americans actually probably is a little bit more cohesive than than uh, Hispanic or Asian. The Hispanic one, I think, is 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 a really good one. You mentioned Asian too, because it, both of these are very. They cast very wide nets and cast a whole lot of very disparate uh, populations within those nets. Um, you know, just the Hispanic, just using the Hispanic. Uh, population in the context of American politics, there's all sorts of Hispanic uh, populations, and they have different, they have different interests, they have different uh, points of view, and so you know a Mexican American uh, population in Texas is going to look a lot different than a Cuban American population in Miami, than a um, well you can just use Florida for this, a Venezuelan community in Miami, even the Cuban community is really split into two things, the Bautista refugee families and the and the Castro refugee families. And so when you're casting these wide nets and using them for political purposes, I mean, you really get a mistaken idea. And I think as sort of this sort of condescending uh, look at people, not just from a, and not just from a politics point of view, but from a policy point of view as well. You're, you're basically doing a one size fits all for what is really a, a very diverse and not necessarily cohesive
1: uh group of communities i couldn't have put that better you know the hispanic uh, example even has other weirdness so you could be someone who's descendant of spanish conquistadors uh, uh pure 100 percent european origin white and looked down upon and discriminated against uh people of Indian or mixed Indian white heritage in your home country and be very racist. And you come to the United States and suddenly you're a member of the Hispanic minority, not differentiated from a brown skinned farm worker. Or you could be someone from uh, Guatemala who speaks an indigenous language, doesn't even speak Spanish, except maybe as like a second language or a Basque speaking person from Spain. But because the classification is ultimately based on what country you're from, suddenly you're Hispanic. Now the word Hispanic traditionally means related to Spain and Spanish culture but if you're if you're a, a Basque or a indigenous person living in the rainforest of of Argentina or wherever you're not really uh Hispanic in any sense of the word but you just get lumped into the same category kind of arbitrarily. Yeah and I mean and that's not even consistent
0: right because and I'm not sure. I don't recall if you use Elon Musk as a, as an example, but I'm going to use it as an uh, as an example. Elon Musk comes from South Africa. He he was born and raised in South Africa. He came to the United States, made his fortune. I think he actually started making a fortune in South Africa and he came to the United States. But technically speaking, Elon Musk cannot check the box for African American, right?
1: <laughs> Because, right, so because so, there's no,
0: so, yeah, I mean, even though it's it, from it, Africa, literally from right. Africa,
1: because it's defined as a descendant of the black races of Africa, so it's an explicit racial classification, and it's not consistent among the classifications because it's not that one is a racial classification. Asian is also descended from the original peoples of Asia, but Hispanic is defined by culture. So, if you are a Hispanic family, move to Japan for a generation, but retain Hispanic culture, then move to the U.S., you're still a, you 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 never become Asian. Asian. But if you're a Japanese family moved to Latin America, adopt Spanish culture, you're both Hispanic and Asian because you retain the racial classification as well as a new cultural one. So there's not even consistency among how people are classified because, again, there was no grand plan. This was all done sort of in the federal bureaucracy very quietly. It wasn't very controversial. No one was paying attention. And as you'd expect from sort of... Uh, half-assed government bureaucracy is just you know coming up with i mean the hispanic classification itself was literally invented and defined by three women who volunteered randomly from the government bureaucracy one they chose one puerto rican woman one cuban-american woman and uh one mexican-american woman they said sit in a room as long as you have to uh with you know we, we have a deadline but meet that deadline and decide what the classification should be called and they came up with Hispanic, but they argued about it for a while. Could have been something else, and how it's defined. So by defining it as of Spanish culture and or origin, which is how it's defined, it includes people from Spain, but it wouldn't include a mixed race Brazilian, which who a lot of us would think of as Latino, but the, but it's not, but they're Portuguese speakers, not Spanish.
0: <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm laughing at this. I, I I've been around this for for decades, right? Uh, so I you know, I was an employer in the private sector. I mean this, and this. I mean this. This is a very big deal in the private sector too. It was. I haven't been in a hiring position in the private sector. I think in fifteen years at least. Uh, yeah, about fifteen years. And uh, but I mean I, I can tell you that it was an issue. It wasn't an overriding issue, but it was always there, where you had to be cognizant of, you know, how many applicants you were getting. How you know what the distribution was among the EEOC categories, if you will. You know what the outcomes were for that. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing in terms of just making sure that you are trying to make your, you know, your workforce diverse as well as, you know, as excellent as they can possibly be, because that those two things are, are not exclusive to each other. But I do think that it does tend to uh, solidify, if you will, cement the idea that that is going to be a permanent process in this. And uh, you do address here that... Um, that uh, that there is a legitimate fear that if the government fails to provide that sort of structure, that people will just slip right back into discrimination, either, uh, you know, either uh, I would say intentionally or just, you know, by um, what's a good word for that? Um, Not necessarily unintentionally, I guess is intentionally or unintentionally. I'll just put it that way. Uh, So, I mean, in your, in your book, do you, do you think that, this is something that, a gov- that the government should continue to provide.
1: So I say, you know, the classifications are indeed arbitrary to a large extent. Uh, and, you know, one one reason why we, you know, we haven't talked about it, but the white classifications also are itself arbitrary oh, right, including yeah. everyone from Iceland to Turkey. But uh, and Morocco and so forth are all considered white. But in the context uh, of when these civil rights laws were initially being enforced, the default rule was, in the law of many states was, you weren't allowed to ask people about their race. Uh, to, now we check the boxes, but that was illegal until the 1970s. So the only way of figuring out which minorities you might be discriminated against was to look at people and say, "Well, he looks black. He looks Mexican. He lo- or he looks, you know, Chinese, or therefore Asian." So we only use the visible minorities. So it turns out there were, you know, there were a bunch of white ethnic groups uh that had historically faced discrimination where they live like cajuns in louisiana or portuguese in the northeast in, in new england but they sort of dropped out because it was much harder to identify them so again the cl- the classifications you use uh tend to be the issue so what I, what I say in the book is look all that said uh i say in classified um for ba- basically ensuring that there's not blatant discrimination going on uh, against a particular ethnic group, uh, the visible minorities, let's say. These statistics, these classifications are not great, but they're good enough. You should probably separate out East Asians from uh, subcontinent uh, Asians, because you can easily imagine someone not liking Chinese people, but liking Pakistanis and Indians or vice versa, right? But beyond that, the classifications are good enough about our historical Categories of discrimination that they, you know, I wouldn't. I, I'm not sure we could come up with a better one if we create a new committee. But you, then you have to think of what you're using the classifications for. Beyond that, if you're using them for sociological purposes, like how much progress is a group making in education, it's absurd to put all Hispanics together as if there's no sociological or anthropological differences between, like you said, Cuban or Venezuelan Americans in South Florida, Mexican Americans in Texas, Puerto Ricans in Boston. I mean, you know, even among Native Americans, you know, even in the same state, different Native American tribes will have really different socioeconomic uh, indicators. Uh, so you should really be d- be digging much deeper into the data of these crude categories. For medical research, for medical uh, programs, for medical diagnosis, which is an increasingly common thing uh, to use race for which the government's often requiring this i say should abolish entirely genetics i don't deny genetics is important but these classifications that we have are so loosely and crudely uh, affiliated or uh or um, correlated with the underlying genetics that they do more harm than good And they actually have inhibited medical researchers uh you know you only have so much money to collect your data so if the government's making you collect data about hispanics which is a multi-ethnic, multi-racial from any continent of the world. You could be Hispanic, has no medical salience whatsoever to say you're someone's Hispanic anymore than saying someone's American. So if you're doing that, you have less money available to look at the underlying genetics. So we're actually inhibiting life-saving Potentially world-changing research in order to check boxes that the government's required. So again, so and, if, and in the higher education context, for example, for diversity, if you really want diversity, don't use these crude classifications. Actually, look at how whether the student is adding some, int- something to the to the class that you know it could right. be ethnicity. But like I say in the book, you know, right now the way we do affirmative action, the one thousand and one uh if you have already a thousand mexican-american students you take one more that adds to diversity you have no students from turkmenistan and one applies but he's white so he doesn't add to diversity that doesn't make any sense it doesn't
0: um and and again i think it has to do with first off just the, the crudeness of the categories but also the near impossibility of doing this with rational categories because there are just so many of them right i mean this is part of what the issue is especially in the united states I don't know that there's really a a country anymore that's, you know, ethnically homogenous to or or just maybe, um, you know, with uh, split between just two or three ethnic slash genetic um, uh, groups to where this wouldn't be rational. But the United States is certainly not one of them. We've had so many immigrant waves here and so many different ways in which these populations have mixed over the last two centuries especially probably the last century century and a half that i'm not i'm not even sure you could even rationally come up with a system to promote that kind of diversity outside again once again of the artificial measures that have been created (laughs) which drives irrational policies
1: as a result and you know the underlying assumption of many of these policies especially in higher education is that someone's primary identity uh if you ask them what you know what are you about that i'm a blank uh, in terms of one of these ethnic categories but to a lot of people their primary identity is i'm a christian or i'm a libertarian right. or uh You know, I'm really I'm a I'm a nerd uh, who's into uh, you know Star Trek novels. (laughs) Well, that's me. (laughs) I hang out with you in my I go I go to game nights at the local comic shop, uh, and that's my that's my crew, right? And there are all sorts of identities people have, and you know, if you talk about any kind of diversity, those identities are often more important to what someone contributes to the world and how they see themselves and uh, how they interact with others than than you know, being Hispanic, uh, uh, having, a, a you know, a Chinese grandfather, whatever it may be. So you did mention um, affirmative action.
0: Of course, this comes up in the book, because this is one of the primary functions that are driven by the official government classifications. Um, uh, it, it, this book is not a book about affirmative action, but certainly involves affirmative action. And how does this, how do you, what is your what is your outcome in this book your 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 final outlook on affirmative action
1: So what I argue is that if you're going to do affirmative action you have to decide again what you're doing it what's the purpose Now the Supreme Court in the context of colleges has just ordered colleges to only do it for diversity purposes. And as we just mentioned, I think if you're doing that, these categories don't really work, and therefore it's incoherent to say you're doing it for diversity purposes. Nevertheless, uh, the underlying rationale is generally primarily to help Africa, you know, for reasons you mentioned, two, hundreds of years of slavery, 200 years, 100 plus years of Jim Crow, African-Americans were culturally isolated, segregated in schools and houses. We want to bring them into the economic, cultural mainstream. Okay, so if that's what you want to do, what I argue is we should have the separation of race and state in this context, and we should just not use racial classifications at all, and not even use the African-American black classification, but instead say descendants of American slaves. Uh, Because that is, yes, almost all descendants of American slaves will be uh, Black, but not all Black people in the United States are descendants of American slaves. I didn't even realize this until I wrote classified, but 10% of the American Black population was born abroad. If you include them and their children and grandchildren, it's obviously, I don't know exactly what the statistic is, but let's say it's approaching 20%. And they actually take up a very large percentage of the slots that are given to African Americans in sort of soft quotas by the likes of Harvard. So it's not actually even accomplishing that goal, that original goal. You're basically helping children of often wealthy and well-educated immigrants rather than doing anything to bring, say, the uh, kid who lives in inner city Baltimore into the economic mainstream. Uh, So uh, in general, I would my my strong uh preference would be to abolish in general uh government racial classifications get rid of it entirely in medicine get rid of it in and the affirmative action context in favor of not more narrowly drawn non-racial classifications could be also like resident of an American Indian reservation maybe keep them if you have you know, in certain civil rights contexts just to have that data but otherwise um Basically, you know, we should have separation of race and state for the same reasons that we have separation of church and state. Uh, there's centuries of bloodshed and hostility caused by people who have very strong views about their religion, trying to impose them on others or trying to not have them imposed by others. And we are risking, by continuing to have racial classification, we're risking the same exact kind of tensions. I mentioned before the white category is incoherent. You know, I think there was a good chance Back in the 60s and 70s, a lot of the ethnic groups like Jews and Italians and Poles who had been sort of, you know, we were white, but sort of on the outs uh, historically, and they could have. Uh, just been assimilated into a more general American identity. But the government declared, you know, all you guys are white. You're just in that white classification. Yep. And and that actually is is a step backwards, right? So instead of saying, after the Civil Rights Movement, we're going to move, we're going to take the sort of, let's say, the white ethnic groups that were historically discriminated against, and they could be the vanguard, saying, hey, let's get beyond race. We said, nope, we're going to impose a racial category on you that, you know, a lot of people of those heritage are not entirely comfortable with. Like, hey, my my grandfather was almost lynched for being Italian in the South or whatever why should i you know but nevertheless the government's imposed it on you and once the government imposes classifications like that it tends to uh get reflected in your identity and then when the government starts divvying up benefits based on those classifications uh you're you know, you're in a zero-sum game a war of all against all it's just natural and unfortunate but natural to wind up having ethnic hostility out of that well and i agree
0: and i think that we're seeing this play out in terms of um in in politics, especially um, in politics on the left side of the spectrum, where you have this sort of um, it's really focused identity on immutable characteristics, and because that just leads to conflicts, uh, you you start they start de- developing intersectionality in order to add more categories to to have more claims to authority and primacy and that is a cycle in and of itself we don't need to get into that because that's a little bit outside the scope of your book and the book is by the way uh classified by david bernstein uh you can find this book uh online uh at amazon.com you can i'm sure you can find it at um uh at fine bookstores near you by the way the full title classified the untold story of racial classification in america by Bar- bombardier books and so uh again you can take a look at that um uh, online. Anything else that uh, any any place else that people can find you, David?
1: Uh, well, I blog at the Ball Conspiracy, Volokh Conspiracy, v o l o k h dot com, uh, which is also hosted by Reason Magazine. You can find it there. I blog sometimes at one of the group of bloggers at uh, Instapundit. Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, the at sign Prof D Bernstein, uh, and uh, on fine web, on fine podcasts like this one. I find podcasts everywhere, including this one. Or
0: other than this one, I'm not sure which way it goes. But yeah, I love Volokh Conspiracy. I love Reason.com. By the way, I'm I'm not a libertarian, but I love Reason.com because it's smart. And Volokh Conspiracy is one of their one of the great features. I gotta just say really quickly, Volokh Conspiracy had to move around a little bit. I love the fact that it's at Reason.com, and I think that that's got to be like the best place for for Volokh Conspiracy to um, to exist.
1: Yeah, we're very happy there. Uh, we used to be at the Washington Post, but they've started trying to start to censor us a little bit and they also want to put us behind a paywall. Yeah, you know, we're not we're, we all have full-time jobs as professors. So we don't need the the income. We want the eyeballs. We want you guys to read our stuff.
0: Well, I'm sure you don't mind the income, but yes, that's—I mean—the the, the primary motivation here is to is to make the argument. And uh, David Bernstein makes that argument in classified: the Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. David, thanks so much for being with us. I, I gotta get you back here to talk more about this at some point.
1: Yeah, I you know, the Supreme Court is going to hear the big Harvard affirmative action case, so maybe that will be an opportunity for us to revisit this.
0: There you go. It's a, it's it's a date, David Bernstein. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Bye.
0: Stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. The White House has begun playing word games about the meaning of recession ahead of this week's report on the economy in the second quarter. Joe Biden insisted that we are not going to be in a recession, while his economic advisor Brian Deese made the media rounds to argue that two successive quarters of negative GDP does not automatically indicate a recession. Karine Jean-Pierre floated out a new term, pre-recession, only to deny that we're in one of those as well. What nonsense. American households don't care what technical term describes their current economic misery. What matters is the actual misery itself. This week alone, we have seen consumer confidence hit a one-year low, nearly half of all households extend debt while cutting expenses, and housing markets stall. Voters don't need to have Biden define recession to know that his economic policies are failing. They live Biden's economic misery every day, regardless of what Democrats call it and they will vote for people who acknowledge it. I'm Ed Morrissey. Thank you for watching and listening to The Ed Morrissey Show Podcast. Be sure to subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube to get alerted as soon as new episodes get published. You can support The Ed Morrissey Show and Hot Air's VIP reporting by becoming a VIP member too. Visit hotairvip.com and use the promo code SAVEAMERICA, all one word, for 40% off your membership choose VIP gold and gain membership to access to all of the town hall sites. Thanks again for watching and listening.